curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Shipwrecks with John McChrystal, and tonight it's a ship called the Dundonald. Good evening, John. G'day, Paul. How are you? Very good. Glad I'm not stuck on a shipwreck somewhere. Yeah, or or on a bleak subantarctic island contemplating your your um your meagre food supplies. So this is a this is um back we're going back to 1907, I believe. That's right. Yeah, she was actually the last major shipwreck, really, of the the, the age of sail in this part of the world. A um, little bit later on than this, of course, the Panama Canal was opened and the need to sail around Cape Horn was gone. So everyone sailed north of New Zealand rather than south and uh, the Auckland Islands stopped kept, uh, taking the, the terrible toll that they had on, on square-mastered shipping. Okay, so I was wondering why so many shipwrecks ended up in Auckland Islands, but that's the reason. That's the reason. Uh, the, the Southern Ocean was sort of a shipping superhighway in those days, Uh Everyone ducked down as low as they safely could to get the westerly winds that go around to the earth down there. And, um, yeah, unfortunately the islands are scattered across the path like, like I think Graham said, broken bottles in the roadway. Wow. Well, that explains a lot. So the, the Panama Canal, that changed everything? Yeah, that and the age of steam. Uh, by the 1900s there were steam vessels around. Uh, but they couldn't really sail the route. But they couldn't they couldn't ha- handle the route that the sail- sailing vessels uh, uh, plied. Um, the seas were too rough, and yeah, just not a good look for uh, for those primitive vessels. But once, of course, you could go up through Panama. Uh, you were sailing in a a different sort of class of water altogether, and the, the steam vessels were were king. And the age of sail was over. I have a memory of the TV series The Uneden Line. Yes. And uh, I think Captain Baines was saying, round the horn with steam, sir, you must be mad, or something, exactly. something along those lines. Yeah, he's absolutely right. Yeah, no, you walloped around the horn in a, in a wind-jamming vessel. That was the only way it could be done. So steam, obviously, not as, uh, not as safe to do that kind of a thing. No. Uh, well, the thing is, if, if you've got a steamer that's being pit- pitched around in the vast seas you get down there, then the job of stoking becomes pretty dangerous. And... Um, yeah, all you need also is a is a wave to go down the wrong bit of your vessel and quench the fire or compromise the fire, and you're powerless. So, so the so the yeah. Panama Canal and steam kind of coincided. They did, they did, and yep, that was the end of a whole era of uh, uh, tragedy and and misery at sea in many ways. So, tell us about the Dundonald. Who, who was who was aboard? What was aboard? Yeah, well, the Dundonald was she was a big ship. Um, the the Oneidan line that you mentioned, the, the ship uh, in the opening credits of that, beautiful vessel, and the Dundonald must have looked a, a lot like that. She's a four-master, and uh, she's well over 250 feet long, 2,205 tonnes. Uh, so she's enormous and very powerful and very fast, apparently. Um, she had uh, 27 aboard, uh, including her captain, and one passenger, uh, who was the captain's son, uh, fairly sickly young fellow by the name of Jimmy, who um, 
the doctor had recommended took a, a bracing sea passage to, to try to <laughs> <laughs> clear the lungs a bit. Um, Maybe not that bracing. Yeah, I don't think this particular the regime that was ahead of them was particularly what anyone had in mind. But, but yeah, she, so she sailed from uh, Sydney in, in February 1907 uh, on the 17th with a cargo of about 36,000 bags of wheat aboard. Uh, and yeah, she encountered the usual uh, tribulations in the Southern Ocean immediately. Uh, they had adverse winds and they had stormy, foggy and uh, very cold weather for most of their, their passage. And uh, as happened to most of the vessels that fetched up on the Auckland's, uh, she sort of went quite a long time without being able to fix her position. Um, the captain was clearly aware that, Captain Thorburn was clearly aware that they were uh, in the vicinity of the Auckland's because he sharpened the watch and he shortened the sail. Uh, and they were sort of charging along with, with what's described as half a gale, so a significant wind. Uh, and then suddenly, 12.30am on the fatal night, uh, they saw cliffs right ahead of them. And um, uh, according to the survivors, they, they did their best to wear the ship off the land, which means you, you change the direction of the ship in front of the wind. Uh, and that manoeuvre had the effect of just completely losing their wind, apparently, and the sea took over, picked them up and just hurled them into the cliffs. Uh, so she met a very sudden and violent end, and there was no chance for anyone to prepare for it. No. And I'm, I'm, how was the captain's son? Well, the captain's son was one of the first to go. Uh, poor old Captain Thorburn and Jimmy Thorburn were amongst a bunch of them who were swept off the decks by, by a large wave. Uh, pretty much everyone was sort of picked up and hurled into the sea. Uh, one or two of them managed to get into the rigging and a couple of the others uh, got ashore and then everyone else struggled back on the decks. Um, we're in the middle of a storm. We're on one of the worst coasts on earth, uh, just perpendicular cliffs, uh, monstrous seas and uh, strong wind, very, very, very cold. And, of course, it's the middle of the night. So it's hard to imagine a, a more nightmarish situation, really. Not at all. I mean, it's, it's just uh, it's, un, it's unthinkable. Um, so the, the the ship's sort of breaking up, I take it? Is it, is it sort of falling apart? And Yep, it didn't take long. They, um, they got until daylight, really, before she, uh, before she really went. She was mostly submerged by the time the sun came up, and uh, m most of the survivors were in the rigging in the, uh, the jigger mast, which is the rearmost mast on a foremaster. Um, and yeah, they managed to, uh, to to make contact with the the people who were ashore. Uh, yeah, not much distance between the top of the mast and the cliffs, but it was large enough. But they managed to get a line across to the guys on the cliff, and it was made fast at both ends. And then they went hand over hand over the over the rope, believe it or not. Uh, well, the ship is still sort of rocking and rolling, no doubt, and. Uh, yeah, uh, hundreds of feet high these cliffs, and uh, the masts are, are 150 odd feet high themselves. Uh, not for the faint-hearted. So, what was the scene the next day? Yeah, well, the um, the bulk of them, uh, the bulk of the survivors, managed to to get across onto the cliffs. And uh, yeah, we're, we're talking 16 people out of the 28 who were aboard uh, survived. 
Um, in fact, there were 17, but one of those who got ashore uh, in, at the height of the storm actually fell to his death before the rest of them got ashore. So they're down to 16 by the time they're, they're ashore. Um, now, we're, we're not on Auckland Island, funnily enough. We're on uh, the aptly named Disappointment Island, which lies about five miles to the west of Auckland Island. See, they never should have named it that because it just brought bad luck upon it. Yeah, yeah, and it, um, most of those actually knowing its name and finding themselves wrecked on it would have been, um, yeah, far from encouraged by, at, at their prospects too, I'm So sure. do, do we know who named the island? Uh, I, I'm afraid I don't recall. Um, but someone who obviously a previous wreck. Yeah, yeah, and it's someone who obviously had higher hopes of it than, than it uh it, it oh, I see. So they might have got to it thinking it was something else. Yeah, could could well have, could well have. Um, no, I'm afraid that's a little bit of research I haven't done, and if I even knew, I've, I've got no no recollection of it at the moment. So at, at this stage, they have to get off Disappointment Island because it's no use to them. Is, is that the story? Well, that is, but uh, there's unfortunately no way available to them. They've got no no significant wreckage off the Dundonald that they can use. And I've described Auckland Island in previous episodes at, at reasonable length, and uh, it is a bleak place, and most of the foliage there is rata or um, another another low-growing shrub called a dracophyllum. Uh, neither of them yield sort of particularly usable timber if you want to build anything, like a hut or a boat or anything like that. So their, their predicament's pretty extreme. Now, of course, they've when they're wrecked, they don't actually know where they are. They suspect Auckland Island. Uh, and all of them know that there is a uh, a castaway depot on, on Auckland Island. So priority number one for them is to consolidate their position and then find this depot. What is a castaway depot? Well, in the wake of the t- the twin tragedies of 1864, the Grafton and the Invercauld uh, both wrecked on Auckland Island and then followed up quickly by the General Grant in 1866, the Australian and New Zealand government sent uh, their their steamers down there to establish little huts, basically, with supplies and rifles and, in some cases, boats, so that if anyone were shipwrecked there, they had the means to sustain themselves and maybe even rescue themselves. Uh, and they would also mount these uh, annual sweeps where the government steamer would go down and just cruise along the shore and yell, Anybody there? Anybody there? And is that because shipwrecks were so common? They were. Uh, from 1840, uh, 1864 to 1866, there were three ships and a suspected fourth, in fact. So, yeah, they were piling up there at a pretty pretty furious rate. So these guys are on this island, and, I, and, and they, I guess there's, there's nothing there for them to eat or, or drink, I, I, I take it. Or, or, or there's, you know, I guess they can collect water and so forth. Yeah, the, the water on the west coast of Disappointment where they fetched up turned out to be bad. Uh, it, had, it was contaminated with some kind of uh, salt, perhaps even arsenic, as sometimes happens. But either way, they, they were all finding it uh, pretty disagreeable. Um, so, yeah. So, so they had to get to Auckland Island. Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, but that's well down the track, believe it or not. Oh, really? Yes. God. Um, describing Auckland Island uh, as I was before was sort of the preamble to saying Auckland Island was bleak, but Disappointment Island was worse, and that's where these guys were. So, yeah, um, they have the advantage that they've got two pretty competent officers left alive. They've got a man named Jabez Peters uh, and another, another man by the name of McLaughlin, the second mate, um, who, are, who are both alive and in directing operations. 
uh, both in a pretty bad way, as they all were, sort of barefooted, underdressed, mostly bruised and injured from, from the efforts to get ashore, uh, hypothermic, um, yeah, and just traumatised by seeing so many of their mates killed so so quickly. Uh, You'd have to dig deep, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. You really would. And, of course, the first blow to their morale, after the shipwreck, of course, which is major in terms of blows to morale, uh, they sent a, 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 an expedition across to the east coast of the island, not knowing it was the east coast they were shortly about to happen upon. But as soon as they came over the crest, they saw that Auckland Island lay six miles across some of the, the roughest sea on earth from them. So that showed them two things. One, the castaway depot wasn't on the island they were on. The second one is that it was completely out of reach to them with the resources they had available uh, on, on Auckland Island. Um, disappointed. Yeah, disappointed. Yeah, doesn't begin to express their feelings, I'm sure. So they relocated to the East Coast because they discovered water there, but poor old Jabez Peters, the first mate, didn't make it. He was comparatively elderly for someone at sea. Uh, he was in his 60s, and he died 12 days after the, the ship was wrecked. Um, they, they buried him in the, in the peat, the peaty ground, uh, on top of Disappointment Island and, yeah, decamped and formed a new camp over on the east coast. Who was keeping all this, um, all, the, all the details of this? Uh, the, yeah, it's a good question. The recall seems to have been pretty good amongst these guys, uh, and they all told their stories afterwards. Uh, whether anything was being written down, I very much doubt. Uh, not unheard of, I suppose, for people to, to keep pencil paper on their person, but, yeah. Probably not didn't survive. Likely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I know in the instance of the General Grant that James Tier, one of the survivors, kept a, a log of sorts, yeah, aptly named log, on a piece of bark. Uh, and he would, yeah, scr- scratch away with an albatross needle and, and seal blood on a piece of bark. So there was a record kept. But, yeah, very much doubt there was much of a record kept here. So I'm, I'm going to predict that the, all these guys are going to die and it's going to be a disaster, but you're going to have to wait to find out what happened because I believe it might be something different. We're talking to John McChrystal. The wreck is the Dundonald, and we will be back with more in just a moment. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. And we're back with John McChrystal talking the wreck of the Dundonald, 1907. The crew who were left are trapped on Disappointment Island. What do they do? First thing they've got to do really is get food and water and shelter. Did, um, they, did they have food with them? They didn't salvage a thing from the wreck. Oh, so God. they were living completely off, off the land. Uh, the one good thing about Disappointment Island, and it remains a good thing today, is that it's absolutely festooned with uh, mollymorks, small uh-huh. albatrosses. Uh-huh. So their diet consisted completely of raw albatross for the first few days. Uh, at some stage, pretty early on, they did the usual slap your pockets and see what you've got that might be useful, and someone had half a box of matches. Uh, soaked through, of course, but uh, it gave them some hope. And after three or four days, they actually managed to get, get a fire going, which... Um, was a good thing, and that fire burned for the next seven months. 
My God, seven months. Seven months. Because you wouldn't want it to go out, would you? But I guess you've got plenty of wood there. Well, well a lot no. of it would be wet, wouldn't it? Yeah, and, and the thing is, the, the wood there, it's mostly rata, which burns beautifully. But the difficulty you've got is you're cutting it with uh, your average seaman's knife, which uh-huh. is pretty sharp, but Small. this is very, very hard wood. And uh, Disappointment Island is not super abundant in wood of any description, as it turns out. There are a couple of valleys there that that are reasonably wooded, but the rest of it's mostly tussock. So, yeah, they, they had the nagging anxiety about exhausting their fuel if they were there for too long, too. Seven months, they would have got through quite a bit of wood. They would have got through a power of wood, I'm sure. Um, they, yeah, like most of these guys, they're at a huge advantage to, to us soft, modern people. Um, they, they're tough as nails anyway. They're used to the cold, yep. and somehow that helps. Uh, they know a bit about how to build fires. Uh, give me a box of wet matches and throw me ashore on <laughs> a place like that. It would be a complete disaster. Uh, I, I just, I, I wouldn't back myself to get a fire going in the best of conditions. There'd only, be, there'd only be one man alive now who could do that. Bear grills. <laughs> bear, bear grills, of course. Yeah. Um, these guys make bear grills look like a real softy too, I, I, I'd submit. Um, I expect Bear doesn't smoke, so he'd be doomed to start with because it's the fact that these guys uh, uh, kept matches in their pockets that, that saved them most of the time. Good so thinking. Smoking can be good for your health under certain, certain circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. So these guys have got across to the east coast of Disappointment Island. They've got a fire going. They've actually salvaged a couple of sails from, uh, from the ship uh, before the wreckage completely disappeared. Uh, and that's what they're using for shelter. They're sort of huddled underneath canvas. Um, the weather is getting worse as winter comes on. Hooray. And uh, their their canvas isn't keeping them sheltered enough. Uh, luckily, one of the, the members of the crew, uh, very mixed crew this one, as I, I think quite a few vessels in those days had, uh, they had sort of Russians and Finns and Germans and a couple of South Americans, Australians, Kiwis, uh, you name it. Uh, but one of the Russians remembered vaguely from his uh, childhood being told how farmers in, in, uh, uh, back in the day in his part of the world used to build pig pens and housing for their pigs. And they'd excavate a hole in the ground and then build low walls around it and then roof it over with uh, basically sod with mud. And um, that's what they did. They They had a small splinter of mast from the ship and they used that as a digging implement and they built several uh, huts in this way. Uh, They'd they'd sort of construct a a sod wall and then roof it over with whatever straightish sticks they could find, weave tussock in in amongst the sticks, uh, cover that with turf and then more grass and then more turf and then weigh it all down with, with anything else they could find to keep it from blowing away. And that ended up providing them with effective accommodation as it began to sleet, snow and hail even more regularly as winter came on. Is it still there, do you know? Uh, No, it's almost certainly not there. Uh, Whether or not there are traces, I'm not sure, but things really do get swallowed up there. Uh, And, yeah, there are some great contemporary photographs, actually, of of, uh, that little encampment they made that were taken when they were rescued. Oh, well. Because, needless to say, those who rescued them were just full of admiration for these guys that they managed to survive these circumstances. So now, what do they do? Yeah, well, now your day, basically, is divided between scratching around to find enough firewood uh, to keep the fire going and finding enough food to keep 
everyone alive. And is this still mostly the albatrosses they're eating? still exclusively albatrosses at this stage, uh, but now at least they have the luxury of scorching them over, yeah. a, over an open fire, um, which, yeah, made them slightly more pal- palatable. Um, soon after, after they'd shifted to the east coast, they discovered seals, and uh-huh. then soon after discovering the seals, they discovered how to kill them. Uh, they're quite easy animals to kill, apparently, but, yeah, there's a, a knack to it. You've got to hit them at the right spot at the base of the nose. And uh, they tried stabbing them, thumping them, throwing rocks at them and what have you, but uh, only really served to make the seals very angry until that, someone <laughs> accidentally hit one on the right spot. And That's a brutally grim kind of image there, isn't it? It is, it is. But the beauty of the seal, once you've killed them, is there's a lot of very palatable meat there, and... Needless to say, you've got the skin, which oh, is right. great for clothing and uh, blankets and uh, shoes. Uh, these guys are all barefoot that kicked their sea boots off getting ashore. Um, so and, how long have they been here now? Yeah, well, let's say they've been here a month by the time they've, they've okay, so reached this sort of level of luxury. Fast learners. Seals, yeah. Very fast learners. Yep. Quite remarkable, really. Um, yeah, there's... Um, an extract from uh, the diary of one of the survivors, which I'd, I'd like to read if I can. Absolutely. Uh, this is the account he gave sort of afterwards. Um, so, yeah, basically what they're doing all day, every day, is trying to kill albatrosses and enough of them to, to uh, live on. Uh, so, he who has a coat is considered well off. We generally return from the hunt with eight birds. This is a load. Those who've not been hunting invariably ask the others, how many fat ones did you kill? Everyone tries to beat the other. Everyone cooks his own bird, and when he's finished, he calls the next for cooking. The birds are generally burnt on the outside and raw on the inside, so they're not very palatable. Cooking was very difficult, and uh, when you've cooked your bird, you're as black as a negro, having no soap with no means of washing, so we look like savages. However, a mollymawk skin is used for towel, and for soap, we rub our faces with the greasy part first, then wipe with the feather side. This is called a skin wash. So, yeah, wow. it's... It's interesting. Yeah, it's not It's not the Survivor series on TV, really, is it? They, they manage to look a little bit grimy and dishevelled, but, yeah, they're not having a skin wash with a with a, a, a bloody bird skin. So were the, um, I'm thinking the albatrosses, were they easy Were they easy to catch because they had no history with humans or what was the story with catching them? Yeah, they're completely fearless and they remain that way uh, today and of course they were nesting at the time these guys were, were hunting them down. So they just won't leave the nest while they have young. Of so that was useful. Um, and, and that's the same here if you go and see the albatrosses down in, in Dunedin. That's right. And if, if you have the, the privilege of going to the, the subantarctics these days, you can go right up to them and vice versa. If you're sitting in the tussock, they'll walk right across you without without turning a, turning a feather. Was yeah. there any mention of the albatross egg? Uh, no, they they must have been there out of season because they didn't, didn't go for the eggs. Uh, other castaways did. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, but it became clear that... Uh, once they'd survived one winter there, that due to fuel shortages and what have you, they were not going to survive another winter. So the main effort uh, come summer was to try to get across that five-mile gap and uh, find the castaway depot. So that became their um, their focus. So this is nearly a year since they were shipwrecked? Yeah, this is five months after they oh, shipwrecked. five months, OK. But they're contemplating what's happening a year later, right, uh, another five months yeah. down the track. Yeah. yeah. 
So they haven't got a boat. They've got no timber. But uh, they figure they can they can cobble together something called a coracle, which is basically a frame with skins stretched over it. And uh, they're typically oval, aren't they? Around. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and th- they're one of the most ancient sea craft in, in the history of humanity, really. Uh, so these guys have a theoretical knowledge of how to go about it. And uh, remarkably, despite the fact that there's not a straight stick of timber anywhere on Disappointment Island, let alone Auckland Island, they managed to, to sort of string together a, a, a credible frame and to, to use both canvas, which uh, they salvaged a few scraps of, uh, some of their own clothes and seal skins uh, to, to sort of skin it over. Uh, and so they had a coracle. Um, some, I'm not sure how many set off on, on the first expedition, but on the 31st of July, the coracle uh, made the crossing. must have been a calm day because it's a hideous piece of water. Uh, they, they paddled across the five miles to Auckland Island. They, uh, the prearranged signal was that they should uh, light two fires if they were successful uh, in locating the depot. But after three or four days of blundering around on Auckland Island, which is just not an easy place to walk about in the best of circumstances, they couldn't find the depot. So they lit one fire on their return to the cliffs, and uh, that puzzled everyone back on Disappointment Island. And then, remarkably, they made the return crossing uh, in the Coracle, and the Coracle was smashed to pieces when they got back to Disappointment Island. So they hadn't found their depot? They hadn't found the depot. Why go back? Well, they had to go back because uh, they knew nothing about Auckland Island, whereas they were quite well set up on disappointment. Uh, but yes, so they've had one morale-destroying attempt uh, to, to better their situation by finding the depot. So they obviously got back together and uh, they, they were like, well, it's got to be there somewhere. Exactly right, yeah. So they got back and they all had a, had a natter about it. And meanwhile, and this must have been the... The, the greatest blow to any of them since uh, the, their own ship had gone down, uh, a ship was sighted on the 22nd of August uh, and they lit a huge fire, as you would, and it sailed on and disappeared without showing any sign that they'd, they'd been seen. So they, they seemed to have no doubt that the ship must have seen them, such was the scale of the fire they lit. But for whatever reason, that just pressed on. Uh, imagine how you would feel. Not very good. No. Yeah, so... So what now? Yep, same thing. They've got to find this depot. It's their salvation. Uh, if they don't find it, they die. So dying in the attempt is at least attempting to to uh, preserve themselves, really. Um, because, uh, yeah, I should say, actually, this is quite ingenious. Just after the ship had gone and disappeared, uh, one, it must have occurred to one of them that albatrosses follow ships. Uh, if you're in the Southern Ocean, the albatrosses are with you always and they sort of swing around in, in your wake and they come very close to the vessel. So what they did is they um, they went and found as many albatrosses as they could and tied strips of fabric around their necks uh, with messages asking for help. That's and, a good uh, idea. Yeah, and so the birds would disappear at dawn as they do and um, go and hopefully one or two of them would have sort of wheeled around the ship and then come back at night. But demoralisingly they found that all of the birds they'd marked that way seemed to have some way of getting rid of the strips of cloth because they all came back without the cloth. They needed the technology that Doc used today in the in the, in the forest and bird people where they can clip a little tag on birds. Yeah, that's right. Preferably with a radio signal. Yeah. yeah. 
but um, not no such luck. But it's an ingenious idea. Fantastic idea. It's a, it's up there with the um, the General Grant's uh, crew's notion of as building little ships, little little four foot wooden boats to sail the Southern Ocean, in case someone happened upon one and read the message that was cast into it. That's and, yeah. and did, did did that work? Uh, no. No. Yeah, I, I guess there's a, there's a high element of chance with those ideas. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of message in the bottle stuff, isn't it? It is exactly what a message in the bottle is, really. It's just a, it's a desperate measure. A bit rich, though. You, you're killing and eating <laughs> these birds, and then you want them, you want it, them to do you a favour. You want them to save you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you. You can't imagine the albatross had much fondness for for the people who are living amongst them, really, because not only were they they sort of picking them up off the nest every now and then to work out how fat they were, but then when they were fat enough, they were killing them, and then to add insult to injury, they're also using them as some kind of toiletry. So, yeah, no, not a good look. Okay, so we're we're on Disappointment Island still. This is the crew of the Dundonald. The ship has gone down, and they know that there's they know that there's this this, this de- depository of of uh, things that can save them on Auckland Island. But they they've been there. They couldn't find it. Now they're going to have to go back. Surely they're going to have to go back. They have to go back. So step two, build uh, another coracle. So yep, they build another coracle, and this one sent off on the third of October with four aboard. Um, now she made it to Auckland Island, but she got sma- uh, it got smashed up uh, once they reached the west coast of Auckland Island. Um, has to be emphasised in case I haven't done it enough in. Uh, both this episode and previous episodes, that the west coast of Auckland Island is not a pretty place at all. Uh, again, it's like the the skyline of uh, a major city converted into black lava and plonked in the middle of one of the nastiest oceans on Earth. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's awe-inspiring and awful. Um, so they approach it in this fragile vessel and they get ashore alive. Uh, the vessel doesn't survive, but they do. Um yeah, they, they clamber to the tops of the cliffs. Uh, they've taken matches over. They've still got this precious supply of matches which were salvaged from the ship. Uh, but they're soaked through, needless to say. Um, they wait the customary three days for them to dry, but none of them will light. So these guys are now in a desperate situation. They have no fire. And uh, what they need to do is uh, find that depot at all costs. So off they go. They... Um, they're on the the west coast. The depot is on the east, and there's approximately 15 miles to cross. But 15 miles on the Auckland Islands is is like sort of 60, 70 miles elsewhere. Uh, there's the stunted stunted forest in your way. There's the tussock land, which we think of tussock as little little tame tufts of grass uh, through which sheep happily pick or what have you. Yeah. Um, the tussock on Auckland Island is. Uh, it's called pedestal tussock, and it's a great big clump of peaty dirt, uh, often as high as your head, and a great big razor-sharp tuft of grass on top of that. And it's like a maze of... Um, uh, yeah, it's like a maze in amongst the pedestals where uh, pigs and goats and sea lions have sort of carved little tracks deep into the dirt. And it's boggy, and it stinks, and it's, yeah, it's just not easy going. You're tuned in to Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.
And we're back with John McChrystal in the wreck of the Dundonald. They are now on Auckland Island. They've found the supply of food and clothing and so forth. What happens next? Yeah, well, you've got four of these guys have made it to the, the castaway depot at Port Ross. Uh, not only have they found fresh clothes and uh, the means with which to have a, have a bit of a makeover and cut their hair and, and have a shave, there's also a boat there uh, which was left with the foresight of, uh, I think in this case, the Victorian government. Uh, unfortunately, they've got a boat, but it doesn't have a sail, which is most inconvenient. But what they, they do is they um, they whip their, their old clothes off and uh, make a sail out of those, sort of stitch them together into a crude sail. Um, they've been away for a few days, so you can imagine that the rest of the, the party over on Disappointment Island are beginning to despair that they, they even yeah. made it. Uh, they didn't get the fire signal they were expecting because these guys couldn't light a couldn't light a fire. Their matches were wet, uh, so they think that that they might have shot their bolt in terms of getting someone to that depot. Um, yeah, but a few days later, uh, I'm afraid I can't remember exactly how long they were away. This little boat uh, finally gets the weather conditions they need to make the return journey to Disappointment Island. And on disappointment, they see the sail and they see this boat getting closer and closer. Um, and four, four chaps they don't recognise aboard. Uh, so they think that this is a party of sealers coming to save them uh, and that their own mates have died. Right. And it's not until they get much closer that they realise... Uh, they've had a makeover. They've had a makeover and that they've been living in luxury. But, yeah, what what an amazing reunion that must have been. It, it, yeah. Every now and then, when you're reading these stories, it just pays to, to sort of sit back and, and think about how you would feel uh, when, when you realise that, that rescue of a sort is at hand. I, I, can feel slight, I can actually feel a slight feeling of elation just thinking about yeah, how they feel. Absolutely. So they've got the small boat. Uh, it's just a dinghy, and again, this is a frail craft to be plying those waters in, but that's what they do. They, they ferry the entire party around Port Ross, where there is this small hut they can use to sleep in. They've got a store of provisions. They've also got a rifle and ammunition, thanks to the uh, those who stocked the depot. Uh, and there are comparatively plentiful seals and uh, still some albatrosses around uh, on Auckland Island itself. And best of all, they know that the government steamer is due. So uh, they're keeping a sharp watch out at this stage for uh, a, a sort of plume of steam and coal smoke on the, on the horizon. Because there's no thought that they could take that small boat all the way back to New Zealand, is no, there? No. Unlike other parties, they they know that rescue will come if they can just keep themselves alive. Previous parties, uh, before the, the, the regular sweep for castaways was instituted, uh, just had to ask themselves, do we sit here waiting for rescue that may never come, or do we rescue ourselves? Um, these guys were com- comparatively well off. Um, yeah, so... There we have it, on the 16th of November 1907, the, the little tin pot steamer that the New Zealand government owned called the Hinemoa rounded the point, carrying a scientific party uh, that they were going to land on Enderby Island. And uh, they saw that the, the flag staff outside the castaway depot was flying a flag at half-mast, which was the, the agreed symbol that there was a shipwrecked crew there. Uh, so they went ashore and discovered the men from the Dundonald. And... Uh, they were gobsmacked by what these people had achieved to stay alive on not only on Auckland Island, which was 
tough enough, but on Disappointment Island, which was reckoned impossible. Quite, um, quite an adventure. Quite an adventure. So they they, they took um, the survivors back to Disappointment Island just to, to uh, basically look at what that they'd managed to do. Uh, they took photographs. They, at the insistence of the scientists who were aboard, they, they took the frame of another coracle that they were busy building uh, just to take it back so that, yeah, that the sheer ingenuity and resourcefulness of these guys should be commemorated. And that's in the collection of Canterbury Museum, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so were, there, were there many other shipwrecks in, in uh, Auckland Island? Was that, was that the last of it? Well, that was the last of the... Um, that was the last of the, the uh, awful era of shipwrecks on Auckland Island. But in the interim, there had been others. And uh, it, it seems a, a, a sort of a disrespect to the memory of those who, who, who achieved so much by staying alive on those islands just to gloss over them. But at the risk of uh, just spending the next three episodes in this series going over yet more Auckland Island shipwreck stories... Yep. Um, I thought I'd just mention uh, in brief some of the others that there had been. Um, we've already done the Invercald and we've done the Grafton and we've done the General Grant. Now we've done the Dundonald, um, but there were others as well, of course. Uh, uh, in 1887, there was one called the Derry Castle, which was sailing happily, they thought, north of the Auckland Islands. Uh, and in fact, if they'd been sailing 100 metres further to the north of Auckland Islands, the Auckland Islands, they would have got away in clear. Instead, they struck a reef off the end of Enderby Island. Um, and there were seven survivors there who, who subsisted for four months. Um, in 1891, there was a vessel called the Compadre, which was sailing along with a, with a cargo of jute sacks, apparently, uh, great big bales of sacks in their, in their hold. And uh, no one quite knows how they caught fire. Uh, one suggestion is it was spontaneous combustion, which is plausible, but apparently one of the crew members told the story that the captain and the mates had gone below to inspect the cargo and had come uh, with a candle and had come back without the candle, oh, looking yeah. a bit nervous. <laughs> so either way, she caught fire and uh, she was deliberately beached in the end uh, on Auckland Island. Uh, 16, 17, all 17 got off, but one of them died of exposure pretty, pretty immediately uh, and the others survived for three and a half months. Um, remarkably, they had no matches, those guys. And in the end, uh, they found the castaway depot and they used uh, a, a pistol cartridge. They fired a pistol cartridge into into some dry uh, tinder, I suppose, and that ignited a fire and that wow. saved their lives. So, yeah, just again, every one of these castaway stories just has a touch of the miraculous about it. And, and were they also picked up by the, the government steamer? Yeah, they were. And in fact... Uh, the Derry Castle, in fact, oh no, I'm sorry, the Compadre, in fact, got another vessel into trouble because uh, the Aorua arrived uh, and discovered them there and took them back to civilization. But in so doing, they knew that they were getting themselves into hot water because they were down there uh, with the intention of sealing, which was by then illegal. So uh, everyone congratulated them on, on rescuing the Compadre survivors and then, uh, yeah, locked them up for going on an unauthorised sealing expedition. Um, in uh, 1895, another ship, she's unidentified, but I believe it was the Murray Alice, uh, a French vessel was wrecked on Auckland Island and she had a crew of 
I think, 19, and there were no survivors that we know of. Uh, and then in 1905, another French vessel, Eerily, called the Anjou, was wrecked halfway down Auckland Island. Uh, all of the all of the the captain and all of the crew uh, staged their own epic survival uh, story down in Carnley Harbour, uh, very close to the spot where the Grafton boys were. So just an extraordinary era in New Zealand's history, the Auckland Islands. And did it stop dead once the the, the canal in in Panama was built? That's right. No more shipwrecks. That's amazing. It is amazing. John McChrystal, thanks very much again for another um, fascinating story, another look at one of our shipwrecks of our past, and uh, we'll hear from you again next week at the same time. Thank you, Paul. Cheers. In a musty hall in Detroit, they prayed in a maritime sailor's cathedral. The church bell chimed to the ranks with an intense for each man on the end of the Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the Chippewong down of the big lake they called it Sugar Lake. Superior to say Weekend Variety Wireless. The Weekend Variety Wireless winds to a close this Sunday evening. I'll be back again next weekend from 8 o'clock on Saturday night with Dr. Grant Christie to Gay Skyward with Astronomy. Stand by, the overnighter is coming up with Tony Amos. We'll take you to the news with a bit of music. It's the dudes here on Radio Live. <laughs>